Hi, this is Nick Dawson, the editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film, and you're listening to the TalkHouse Film Podcast. If, like me, you grew up in the 80s and were at all aware of movies, Dolph Lundgren occupies a very specific place in your psyche. Whether you knew him as Ivan Drago from Rocky IV, He-Man in Masters of the Universe, or the eponymous hero in The Punisher, Lundgren, with his chiseled good looks, blonde hair, and imposing physique, was an action star who seemed the embodiment of masculine ideals. In order to have any staying power in Hollywood, you can never be just one thing, and Lundgren, who was sold to audiences as beefcake, has brains to match his brawn. In his 20s, he was both European heavyweight karate champion and a Fulbright scholar at MIT. As fate would have it, he fell in love with singer-actress Grace Jones while moonlighting as her bodyguard, she got him a small role in the Bond movie of View to a Kill, which led to Rocky IV, and the rest is history. On today's episode of the TalkCast Film Podcast, Joe Lynch, a regular TalkCast contributor and also director of Everly and the upcoming Mayhem, chats with Lundgren, whose new film Don't Kill It is now in theaters. The pair talk about the horror movie, in which Lundgren has a lot of fun playing demon hunter Jebediah Woodley, and a bunch of other subjects, including... Lundgren modeling his career on Clint Eastwood, his move into writing and directing, what he's learned from directors as diverse as Sidney J. Fury and Sylvester Stallone, why it's worse to be chased by a 50-year-old guy with a shotgun than a 20-year-old guy with a shotgun, the political incorrectness of movie violence, but the two start by discussing another famous filmmaker who's been on the TalkHouse Film Podcast, Abel Ferrara. He did uh, uh, King of New York, that Chris, uh, oh, yeah, that Chris Walken great. movie, and, uh, which is so bad good. Bad Lieutenant. Ba- but Bad Lieutenant, I traveled, oh God, we should be just recording the shit out of this right now. We are? All right. Bad well, Lieutenant was cool. But like, we're talking about Abel Ferrara and yeah. like how both of us have had our interactions with Abel Ferrara before. Yeah, yeah. And I went to the, I think it was opening weekend of Bad Lieutenant in New York, traveled all like two and a half hours, three hours yeah. into New York just to see this fucked up movie yeah. that supposedly you're going to see Harvey Keitel's penis. Yeah. Now, to me, that has me sold on a movie. Like yeah. I'm, I'm in, you know. But, but wasn't knowing that the piano where you saw it? No, that came later. But, well, that's the thing. It's like, <laughs> hey, it's catering to a very specific demo. There's, there's the Harvey Keitel penis genre. Yeah, right. But I remember being in that theater watching this. Have you ever been to the Angelica in New York? Remember, uh, it's, it's that one that's like on Broadway in Houston. It's, it really yeah. is. It's the premiere. You know, like, I think so. That's the one I, I met. I think I, I met him there as well, uh, Abel on that one. I wouldn't be surprised if Abel was just down I mean, there in Broadway his troll Broadway in Houston. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But that was, you know, there was something special about going, like, because you had to go down an escalator into the depths of New York. Like, you felt the A train underneath you. Oh, yeah. And it's rumbling as you're going. And that movie... Like it scared the shit out of me. Bad Lieutenant. Bad that Lieutenant scared movie, the though. shit out. It's it is a great. It's a great movie. Even better was there was this guy who was laughing the entire movie, just cackling the entire film. It was like a Farrelly Brothers movie. And oh, then wow. we're walking out, and you know who it was? Harvey Keitel. And I don't think he was laughing at his dick. I think no. he was laughing at just the sheer reaction yeah, the, that 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 movie elicits. The, the opening is just classic, where where the guy is. I can't remember the ex- exactly what he's doing. You know, he, he comes out, he, he goes in his car, he does a hit a blow, then his kids are in the back or show up, then he says, hey, shut the fuck up, kids. You know, go to school. Yep. Then he does something else. 
More blow. And then more blow. Then he does something else. Then he drives onto this crime scene, puts on a badge, right, and walks out. That's and you the go, thing. Okay. If you didn't know the title of the movie and you just walked in, you, you think like, okay, this guy's a gambler. He's a degenerate. He's a yeah. bad dad. He's a total drug he's addict. perfect. Man. And then 10 minutes into the movie, he goes, okay, well, where's the, where's the crime scene? And, yeah. and it's and what it about completely when he's got throws these two you. when he goes, hey, you guys, what are you doing here? And he pulls a gun and he says, hey, is that any good shit you got there? Hey, move over. And he sits down next to him and, <laughs> and he does, does their drugs. Hit. It, it, and they're like in the friggin' under, well, like some would, underpass in Central Park somewhere. I love it's that. It's like movie. good shit. Do you now? Like I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here because Thanks. you have such an like an immense body of work, and you've been part of like all of our movies since the '80s. The thing that I look at when I look at your your filmography, and and, and being a fan of you know everything from. Rocky Four and Red Scorpion, but you know, also Dark Angel, yeah. The Punisher. You know, there were so many movies that you were in, involved in that you were playing with the genre conventions, almost playing on your character at that time. Honestly, having such an immense body of work and your your visual iconography, like when people see your name or see your face or your yeah. body, like you're bringing baggage from 33, 34 years of work, you know, yeah. to to the table every time. So, yeah. for example, like in Don't Kill It, yeah. uh, which we'll talk about, we'll talk bad about Mike Mendez, you know, for the rest of the time. But, sure, sure. Uh, but for now, like when I, when I first watched it and your introduction at the bar, you're Take another mm. shot, slap, slap, another bar, shot, shot. Mm. You know, and the way that Mike constructed it, like he did it in a very classical way. Let's not show, you know, show the star right off the bat, keep it yeah. a little obscure. But within 10 seconds, you know that Jebediah is a badass, right? Yeah. When you're when you're picking parts, when you're getting these scripts, do you ever does is there the little voice in the back of your head say like, Yep, this is a total Dolph movie. <laughs> or do you go like, all right, this is something that's going to change for me, or this is going, this is something that's going to flex my muscles, you know, uh, emotionally or um, you know, cr craft wise. Well, you know, it's been thirty years since I did Rocky Four, so obviously I've changed a lot in that, in that time. You know, especially lately, I've changed a lot, um, and so you pick different stuff, you know, because you just attracted different material. Like for instance. Jebediah, um, you know, the script starts with like a three-page monologue for this character, you know, mm. rambling on about all kinds of me demons and shit that I was like, first you read it and you go, how can I cut some of this? <laughs> how can I tell this in two sentences? And then you start reading it again, you go, this is actually kind of fun, you know. I've realized lately that, you know, in the old days, you know, play a tough guy as a tough guy. Now I don't do that anymore, like in The Expendables and in this movie. I just don't play tough because... Like you said, I come in with so much anyway mm -hmm. that I can take. I can just look at the fun of that character, and it it becomes it, the balance is more effective than playing the tough side of it. Also, when you're six four, you know you don't have to really throw your weight around. Literally. You know that you're going to be a presence yeah. in the room already. Like how how it's do like you the old school that? guys? Like where is it? Walk softly and carry a big stick. That was the old Hollywood method. You know, people in the old movies like Robin Mitchum, they didn't have to prove anything. Not they at just all. walked in the room. He just, but they didn't have he to just do looked back at flips, take a karate stance, and you know, kick five people in the head. They didn't have to do any of that. Yeah, Mitchum. And that wasn't the old the American hero in those days. Didn't do that. He knew, like, or or even like old. You know, I can't believe I'm saying old, young Eastwood. You know, it was looks. And old you know? Eastwood is he 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 never runs. 
He never chases. Well, he did one chase in the Dirty Harry movie, I think, but he never chases anybody down. He let the horse do it for him. Yeah, he, he cuts them off. He waits for them around mm-hmm. the corner. You know, I mean, it's much worse having, having a 50-year-old guy with a shotgun come after you to kill you than a 20-year-old guy. Because a 20-year-old guy, you can fool him. Well, no, but you know that. the 50-year-old guy is going to get you and kill you, you know. But, so that's kind of what I'm playing now a little more. <laughs> but, but, like, uh, that's actually a really good point because... Like I, I I remember when Mike first told me about the the, the movie, yeah. and you know he was going into the mythology of it, and you know all the all the things that you you could plug. No offense, but you could plug any actor into that yes. based on the mythology, the world, the demons, and everything. And then you have this kind of um, kind of a, a cross between like Randall Tex Cobb and Clint Eastwood. You know this drifter that Jebediah plays. You know, yeah. do you remember that in Raising Arizona, where you know Randall Tex Cobb just comes in? He's the one who's going to save the baby. He's the guy on the bike, and he's putting his feet up. He's acting just rude. Get a little bit you know? of Indiana Jones in it too. Like but a bit but exactly, that's a perfect example. Like, there's something about that character that makes him just coarse and irreverent enough, yeah. with enough weight. Because like Indiana Jones, you knew that there were stories before this yeah. one. You know, and that's the way that the movie kind of set, like that's the way that movie works is that you go, okay, there's much more stories. This is just one particular story. And then with Don't Kill It, it could be the fourth part in the Jebediah Woodley, you know, like And also, saga, you know, the Clint way, like his characters were never really, they didn't, they weren't n- nice to everybody, to all the other, they weren't even nice to kids. Not even to the dogs. He spits on the dog, <laughs> smacks the kid around. And that makes you like him more because somehow it makes him more real. Because, you know, guys who run around and shoot people, they don't have to be nice to everybody. And, and that's what I they like about some of that. They're still running and shooting. You still love the guy, you know. Uh, all of his guys, like, uh, and all this man with no name, you know, he, he, he did that. He had, like, a, there was a coarseness to him that made him kind of, uh, that made him... Um, yeah, made him real and kind of likable. You kind of believed that he was that guy, because he didn't—he didn't have to wear the white hat all the time. Yeah, but I do like how there's many moments in the movie that specifically have you go, "I'm going to put my hat on." Like there, there's a clear choice that that hat is is almost part of your armor. It's almost part of your persona. Like when you're putting on the cha- you know the the jewelry in yeah. the beginning, and you know you toss it off. As a yeah. kind of throwaway moment to uh, to the girl that you were with the night before, yeah. but clearly there's a story behind it. Each one of those, you know, pieces, yeah. the trinkets, has a story behind it. Was there um, was there a conscious effort in a lot of that, like with you working with Mike and working with you know like with the other filmmakers in establishing that? Like, was there any discussion about like, okay, how much backstory do we need to go into this, or do we just kind of roll the dice and hope that? it feels like this is part of a bigger mythology. Well, I think, you know, sometimes you work from the outside in mm-hmm. when you're dealing with that, with props because, you you know, you don't necessarily know why or where he got the hat and all, but it's more about when do you take it off. I mean, should I take it off on this line? Should I should I put it back on? I mean, because mm-hmm. you watch the old westerns, and I end, ended up doing some of that, and you realize how it was really cleverly thought out, like with, with John Wayne and... Mm-hmm. Um, and who was the director he worked with a lot? Uh, oh, John Ford. John Ford. Yeah. Yeah, how they, in those days, they had an instinct for, like, when do you put the hat on? When do you lean up against the, the door jam when you speak so you don't look too tense? They're, mm-hmm. they're, always, they're always relaxed. They're always leaning up against stuff. So I was trying to, you know, rip off some of those things. Clint does that, too. When, uh, you know, because they used the hat as the symbol of, 
you know, mysticism and you don't really see the eyes that, that well and all of that. See, that, that, that means so a lot to, to me hearing, that. it Smoking. means a lot. Yeah, well, the, the, exactly. That's a perfect point because, like in in Don't Kill It, you're vaping like yeah, a madman. Yeah, that, that was know? Mike. That was Mike Mendes, you know. But then when you're going to take a hit, you don't want to be smoking on every line because then there's smoke everywhere and you start coughing. It, and it you, starts you to turn stupid. into a Tony Scott movie. The whole room yeah. is just diffusion, diffusion, diffusion. So you got to figure out when to do it, you know, like to make it powerful, you know, that kind of stuff. One thing that I, I definitely wanted to touch on, filmmaker to filmmaker. Yeah. You know, um, looking at your career, and then there there was this moment. And I remember uh, when when the Defender came out, and right. I. What's funny is that I worked at a video store at the time, uh -huh. oh. so we were getting all the movies early. Oh, sure. And being a fan of, you know, especially of I Come in Peace, okay. I, I know. Yeah, I like that. All one. right, let me ask. That's like a remake. Do you call it I Come in Peace or Dark Angel? <sighs> I like both. I mean, Dark Angel. I like Dark Angel better. Dark Angel feels like a noir movie. Yeah, and there know? was a picture called Dark Angel in the '30s. Yeah, Samuel. Goldwyn Company. I think that's the reason they didn't use the title. Oh, but the okay. original script of that was very much like "I Come in Peace." It was just a great script about this alien drug dealer who comes down to Earth, you know, and he's followed by he's this harvest. Cop, he's harvesting this cop, harvesting man people. man's brains, right? And this guy, this cop, comes after him. And yeah, just who came up with it? What did they smoke? You know, came up with that shit. It was, Alien drug dealer. And, and, and who would have ever, ever thought that CDs would be dangerous? You know? I know, I know. You show I, that now and then somebody'd be like, what the fuck is that thing flying near them? Like, you don't understand. Like we used to do that in school. We'd be throwing our old CDs at people going like, I come in peace. You go in pieces and you're just throwing them at the teacher. It's and great. They did, yeah, no, that that's could be a good remake though. You, I know, no, that totally. But the problem is, is that what would it be now? Like, what topical thing yeah, could be, know. like, would it be, like, zip drives that they'd be throwing at people? Yeah. You, know? you can't throw the cloud, unfortunately. The way it was, yeah, he came out of it, he had a, he Yeah, he had that, like, shooter, and the shooter would make this, like, little disc. The, uh, one of my favorite DPs, Mark Irwin, shot that movie. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and one of the things that I remember that Craig Baxley talked about was how he was illuminating people from the inside, you know? And I always thought that was so fascinating, like, because you'd have these people who were, like, he would have to light them while they're getting extracted, and you'd have to light, illuminate a wow. person from the inside. It was just fascinating. Well, he was good. Baxley was a great stunt coordinator. I mean, he, all those explosions and all that shit he did, it was all real, you know. He had the actors very close mm -hmm. to all the real stuff, you know. So that segues into, so the moment, so you're, you're on this film, and you have the great Sidney Fury directing it, and then yeah. he gets sick, and then he recommends you yeah. to direct that film. Yeah. What was going through your head at that moment? Well, I'd worked on the script with Sidney, and um, yeah, he got sick, and then he, you know, they asked him for a replacement. He says, "What do you ask? Why, why don't you ask Dolph?" And they're like, "Dolph, what are you talking about?" Because that would never happen now because of like all the unions and everything. No. They don't let you do that anymore. No, you know. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, he he had a good, I think he had an instinct about it, and uh, you know, I directed you know four or five movies, and then I the last one I did right before the Expendables, the producers kind of took it away from me and chopped it up. I hated it. So I said, if I'm going to star and direct, I want to star, direct, and produce. Mm -hmm. And that's my next step. But because I did three Expendables pictures that took about five years to release and all that, I, I haven't gotten there yet. But now i got a few things I'm working on to, to do that, you know? But when I get nervous about time, about running out of time, I always think, well, what year was Clint Eastwood my age? And it's 1989. Can you tell you? In 1989, he was my age. So he, a lot of things that happened in his career since then. So I always think, well, if that guy did it, then I can always, you know, I got a few years left, you know, so I don't have to rush. So one, uh, 
One thing I always wanted to, <laughs> when you were in that position, like so, some of my favorite actor turned directors, when they are put into that position, like I remember when like Mel Gibson did The Man with No Face, you know. Oh yeah, um, I remember you that. You know, yeah. that was his first movie, and you know he had directed like little shorts and stuff like that. Yeah. But that was and, and it was okay. It wasn't bad, you know. It wasn't it wasn't, bad. It wasn't Braveheart, you know. Right, it no. was very slight, but yeah. But he that. would always talk about like, look, I got the best film school in the world because I was on set. And I was learning from all these amazing craftsmen. I was wor- yeah. working with Peter Weir and George Miller, right. two best film schools you could possibly right. get. Yeah. You know, you had worked, you know, with some some great directors, and obviously, you know, because you no, you're a movie lover did, and stuff. It's okay. Of course, but were there any <laughs> filmmakers, you know, or there are who who are your filmmaking influences? <laughs> well. I mean, I haven't worked with some of them, like Clint Eastwood, who's you know, an actor, director, who is very easy. He, he, he does things very quickly and doesn't complicate it, you know. Yeah, he doesn't even say action. He says, go. Yeah, yeah. Stop. He says, I'm going to lunch. When you're ready. Yeah, when you're ready. When you're ready. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, no, I think, you know, I mean, of the people I've worked with, I mean, I, I did. Sidney Fury was really nice. I like him. He, he had worked with Brando and... Uh, you know, a lot of big uh, actors back in the day. You know, he directed Lady Sings the Blues, and mm-hmm. he had some good ideas about working with actors, yeah. you know, how to make the actors feel comfortable, to create an atmosphere where they could play and be playful. He was really good about that. He would never stress out the actors. He he, he was very hard on the crew if they were loud around mm-hmm. the set and stuff like that. And if they hit the clapper too hard, he'd get fucking crazy. Ooh, ooh, uh, yeah. I mean, because that, they didn't, they didn't understand how much... You know, when you're, getting, when you're trying to focus. I like Especially when you have a clapper in your face. In your face. Soft, and it's totally yeah, you throwing you soft, off. Soft mark. But, uh, and also Stallone, I like, uh, you know, I can learn a lot from him because he, what he's good at, he, he kind of imparts a lot of knowledge, physical knowledge, because he's been in so many movies that he can tell you little details about how to hold a steering wheel or don't look over here, look over there, and mm-hmm. don't move, don't do that. He seems like I've heard he's very technical. You yeah, know, very he, technical. Like he that. knows what he needs in the in the edit, so he's going to yeah. get that. But uh, apart from that, I mean, yeah, I did work with some... Some decent director. I just try to watch movies sometimes. I like to watch old movies sometimes and learn from older movies because it's all it's still the same craft, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, yeah, it's just the technology's changed a little bit, but the actual, you know, craftsmanship is the same. I think. I think one of the things that I learn the most when I watch any movie that's like earlier than 1972 mm-hmm. is blocking, because a lot of yeah. times you look at like you know the old Hitchcock movies and you know um, old John Ford and Capra and they're they're basically staging almost theatrically yeah. and they know where to put the camera and they know where to move the camera subtly. They're not doing a lot of coverage. It's mostly masters, but yeah. it makes you appreciate the blocking and, and the interaction between the actors knowing that it's not some guy talking to a tennis ball on the reverse shot. You know, yeah, you, you can know, feel that they're invested. Yeah. And I heard uh, John Ford speaking of John Ford. I heard he had this trick. I saw an interview with Lee Marvin, I think it was, where he said when John Ford had a difficult scene with a lot of actors and it was like a pivotal scene in the picture, he would always, he would always schedule it for like 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and he would block it with all the actors and get it ready. And then he'd say, I don't know if we can shoot this today. It's going to get too late. Uh, let's, let's do it tomorrow morning. And all the actors oh. would be like, fuck. And then they'd say they'd show up on set Next morning, he would ch- he'd change the blocking in the cameras. Completely. Completely. Uh, Moved everything oh, just to throw the actors so they wouldn't. But, but that sort clever, of technique. That's such a clever move. Works you know? for spontaneity, you know, yeah. like because, 
like you know, like after the second or third take, those moments feel kind of stale. Yeah, you know, yeah. and then you start immediately the gears start turning and you start thinking like, how can I make this fresh again? How can I stoke my own flames again? You That's know? why, you know, part of the director's job, I think, is not to burn out the actors, not to rehearse too much, or to, you know, to make sure that you can get put the first or second attempt on film. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's very difficult because, yeah, you know, oh, it's very difficult. Sometimes, you know, I mean, I, I can't, you know, I don't, I don't say anything, but it's like, okay, let's, let's do the scene. Let's show it to the crew. Okay, can we do that one more time? Show it to the crew. And sometimes, you know, inexperienced actors, they give a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, when, you, when I do that. I just, but they will, they will actually get into it. And then, you know, there's another rehearsal. And then on the fourth or fifth take, they're rolling film. And then some of that wonderful shit they did that first take, maybe they come up with some, they, they've lost it sometime. Yep. You know? And then you have to re-harness that. Okay, two more questions and then, yeah, we're, sure. and then we're out. One, John Hines. Oh, yeah, I'm, John I'm a Hines. huge I like fan of John lot. Hines. Yeah, like, I I've been a fan of his him. dad forever, but then when he made those two Universal Soldier yeah, movies, like holy shit. And the thing, the thing that, that blew good. me away from, from those that differentiate from most of the action movies that came out in the last 10, 15 years is the guy knows how to shoot action, but he always never, he never got in the way of the pathos. He never could, because there's a lot of complex emotion going on in both of those movies yeah. that if you strip away all the genre histronics, they're relationships about guys, you know, and, and these displaced souls. And what was it like working with him? Because obviously, you know, he's, he's a madman. I've worked with him before, too, on a show. And yeah. I love the fucking guy. He's, he's making a remake of Maniac Cop, which yeah, is perfect. He told me, yeah. I'm working oh. on something with him, actually. I have a project with him together. Please let um, it be Maniac Cop. No, I got something with him. And uh, he's doing Maniac Cop, I heard he told me. No, I like him. I mean, he's got his own, you know, his own way of doing things. And he's got his own kind of ideas and it's very dark and very weird and kind of mm-hmm. you know it's very it doesn't inclusive. compromise it's very inclusive it's where something, it doesn't feel know. like it's just shot reverse shot it feels no, no, like no. he doesn't compromise and it's usually something pretty violent you know it's usually some really brutal thing in the, at the bottom of it but he you know you know where I'm a little more say if I like Clint Eastwood because his violence is always a little bit comedic, mm-hmm. just slightly, even when it's very brutal. Well, when Clyde the Ape is there somehow. There's you know. no, or like even in Unforgiven, when yeah. he comes in and shoots people, I've killed a lot of people. <laughs> you know, I've always been lucky at killing folks. You know, like it's, you know, but but John Himes is like dead serious about that. I mean, it gets really violent, you know, and you know, I like that in a way. It's, because now people are, it's so politically incorrect to show blood and violence anymore, which mm-hmm. is weird because Ninety percent of all movies now is like action movies, you know, and superheroes and all that. But I guess people in general, public, they don't see slaughtered animals and they don't go hunting anymore like they used to. They've never seen a bar fight. Oh yeah, they're eating their burgers while they're watching the, the movie. Seriously, or like whatever, in the but 40s, they don't realize where it's coming from. People came from like Okinawa and like Iwo Jima and these guys. I mean, people were in the army and they were doing military service and they were in bar fights and shit. So you couldn't get away with doing backflips in a bar fight in those days because people would just laugh going, what the hell is that? But mm-hmm. now people accept it because they're, they're, they're just sitting in the couch, you know. Anyway, so I think John Himes is old school. I like yeah. him. It's great that he's doing TV, a lot of TV too, you know, because he, he knows how to shoot, you know, the guy knows how to shoot and shoot fast. Yeah, I hope to do something else with him. I really do. I do too. All right, last question. Yes, sir. Destiny. Destiny. Yes. What is it? We'll get, we'll get, we'll get deep here. 
you know, we were talking before a little bit about how you and Grace went to the premiere of Rocky Four. Yes. And kind of how you vicariously got to that point. Yeah. Now, I look at your body of work and I look at how you've taken, you know, you've you've grasped the reins of your career yeah. by being a producer, by being a writer, by being a director and an actor as well. Yes. A lot of actors don't do that. A lot of actors are a little more passive in their careers and just kind of go, let's see what happens. Like, let's let's let <laughs> let throw caution to the wind and hopefully I get that big Marvel gig or maybe I'll do that great in Sundance movie. But you like, especially from like the late 90s on, you seem to have really cornered the market in, you know, you know your niche and you know your audience. What what if there wasn't that fateful moment that, you know, you and Grace met, mm-hmm. would you still be as creative a person, maybe just not in the same field? Because obviously you had a, 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 a very well-publicized different path that you were going down, but, you know, you, your, your, your career, your passions steered the other way. And yeah. I can't not think that, if it wasn't that fateful encounter that you had back in the mm. 80s, it would have been something else. Do well, you feel that way? I, I do feel like some of my destiny was to entertain people and try to make them feel good and, and have, I guess, you know, that's what I've done in the last 30 years, you know. Affected, right. Affected people. And I think that's what, what I, I didn't intend that, but that's what it's been. And I think when I go around the world and I go on publicity tours and that's kind of how I've, get their their love or their affection comes back to me and that's what's you know makes me want to do this uh, do this job you know awesome thanks thank you sir thanks we're out this is Nick Dawson from Talk Has Film and you've been listening to Joe Lynch and Dolph Lundgren on the Talk Has Film podcast This episode was engineered by Derek Olds and mixed by Mark Yoshizumi. The Talk House podcast producer is Elia Einhorn. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit talkhouse.com slash film. Subscribe to Talk House Film and Talk House Music Podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher, where you can find all our previous episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review as it helps others to find the podcast. Uh, the guy who played Paulie, um, uh, Bert Young. Bert Young. And he said, "Hey, kid." And I looked in there. I went over to the limo. Hey, how you doing? And he had like a big bar in the middle, like it's about thirty bottles of liquor. <laughs> and I looked at his, and he said, he saw me looking at. Him, he goes, "A lot of pressure in this business, kid. A lot of pressure." <laughs>